Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I'm your host, Avi Wolf. You can find this and other episodes like it on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify, and you can help support the podcast through Patreon. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's conversational corner, covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. This episode's topic and the band went marching on. They were as common as local baseball teams and almost as popular. Occupying a middle democratic and democratizing ground between elite European classical music and more common but less respected saloon fare, the American marching band was everywhere in the Gilded Age. In small towns and big cities, at civic events, presidential inaugurations, park outings, and circus tents. Wherever you went, there were brass bands. But where did they come from? How did they become so popular? What did they mean for an increasingly changing American culture? With me today to answer some of these questions and more is Professor Brian Proch, author of The Golden Age of American Bands, Documentary History from 1835 to 1935. Brian, welcome. Thanks for having me on, Pleasure is all mine, and I very much enjoyed the book, and uh, I highly recommend it to people who can uh, afford it or find it in the library. So let me start with the question I asked all, almost all my guests uh, on the podcast. Let us imagine uh, a European cultural critic, uh, musical critic, or perhaps a bandmaster himself, comes to tour the United States to uh, learn about uh, the state of marching bands and the culture of marching bands at the beginning of our period, say around uh, the end of the Civil War, in the middle of our period in the 1890s, and at the end of our period after the First World War. What would they find? What would have changed? What would have stayed the same? Oh, well, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think the first thing they would have noticed is maybe how similar American bands were to European bands in a number of ways. But then there's subtleties of of differences in there. So say like if it were an English bandmaster, the English were much more in line with brass band idea a band that was all brass and and that would have been similar to say a civil war era american band but as time progressed and we we get to the 1880s and uh, p.s gilmore's band and then into the 90s with Sousa's band um the woodwind aspect would have been a lot more obvious to the average say British guy, because there's just a, a more, say, sort of concert band woodwind thing going on as, as American bandmasters try to find a way to not only play popular music, but play uh, classics in arrangement. Um, and the the other, well, the one, one thing that, uh, that Sousa, say, argued about a lot with European bandmasters who did come to America quite a bit and vice versa. Um, Sousa was under the impression that European bands largely were all subsidized by the state, whatever government 
have you. Um, so, and, and that was true of many of the bands that Sousa would have interacted with, especially the really famous ones that came over from Europe to the United States. So the Guard Republican from France. Um, uh, there's a there's a German band that comes over, say for the World Peace Jubilee, um, and a, a number of English bands. And and he was always a little angry that they were getting money from the government um whereas by contrast he would have argued that american capitalism meant that he was able to be a rich bandmaster who was also a, a popular icon because he was a good entrepreneur so there was an entrepreneurial spirit that Sousa would have said was there and in a lot of ways he was right gilmore kind of did the same thing the the oddity maybe or maybe the inconsistency there is the extent to which Sousa and Gilmore themselves did receive subsidies you know Sousa got his start as a uh, band director for the marine band which you know it's 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 a government supported entity um and and Gilmore his band did join uh on mass for the civil war for a i don't know 6 month period until they government restructured how they allocated money towards bands because the war wasn't going so well and um so they both benefited from government support is the kind of irony there and then when we finally get to say the world war one era or the the 20s before the great depression um there's a real uh, by then the bands are like you said in the introduction they really are everywhere and it's it's not even just one band per town but oftentimes multiple bands it depends on how big of a place of course but a a large city like chicago would have had three four five very well-known large bands and then a whole smattering almost every single park would have had a band associated with it and they would have played weekend concerts and so they really were by by the time the great depression hits really interwoven with the fabric of just the american lifestyle and then of course that all kind of goes to pot after the great depression and an american taste change and, and now bands are more of a i don't know afterthought they're attached with athletic events and things like that and not so much uh end in themselves like they were for much of the period uh, that i look at in my book so let me ask the question how is it because the Gilded Age was an era in which a lot of different cultural styles, musical styles competed with one another. How is it that the brass band caught caught such fire in so many places throughout the country? I think part of it's that it's a very versatile ensemble. So if you look at the programs that a lot of bands played, um, you take your average town band, say, uh, they would have given a concert at minimum every weekend, maybe a couple concerts on the weekend, probably a couple during the week. And the music that they're playing is um, balanced in a lot of ways. So they're able to play the latest popular music and they're also able to play um, classical arrangements, you know, Wagner or, there's not Richard Strauss, but Johann Strauss, say, or um, Gilbert and Sullivan, um, light classics. And um, the, in my book, you might have noticed there's, there's quite a few documents where there's certain bandmasters that sort of 
want to argue that the band itself is an art ensemble or an ensemble for art music, but the the problem that they encounter is they're not quite getting the respect that their orchestral counterparts are getting. And, and so they actually frequently argue that, you know, their job is not to say enlighten the populace, but to entertain the populace. And then if they're able to enlighten the populace along the way, then so much the better. Um, so they're, they're, the other thing to remember about why bands are just so popular is um, because it's just the way the American public space works in the Gilded Age. You, you know, we have social media today and, and no one leaves the house or whatever. And we're all texting all day. But back then, you know, when you got off of work, you, you wanted to go see friends or something like this, the, the town park or the city park is where people gathered to socialize and they needed music for these, you know, just, just as a entertainment aspect. And this is an era in which recorded sound is not something. So if you're going to be meeting socially in public and you want to be entertained at the same time and have a little picnic, the, the band is really the perfect ensemble for that because they're able to have this projection that's possible in an outdoor space and especially in the summertime and then the added bonus to all this is the whole patriotism thing because bands are active most in the summer and you have uh, just a consistent string of holidays in the summer that are all uh, in support of American patriotism you know starting with Memorial Day and then Flag Day and then the 4th of July and then eventually Labor Day towards the end of the period. Um, these are all big celebrations of America in a sense. And so they, they really, the bands find this sort of really nice little spot that gives them an opportunity to really speak, not just to a small slice of people like maybe they do today, but to really everyone. So before I follow up on that, I thought I might... Uh add a little bracket question. Say I'm your average American living in an average town, uh, and I'd like to become a player in a brass band, or I'd like to start a band. Uh, what would I have to do? How much, how relatively wealthy would I have to be? Uh, would I have to rely on the people of the town? Uh, how much would I have to travel? Well, you know, the, the, it turns out it, it depends on how good of a band you really need to have. Um, and, and, one of the impressions that we sort of have of American bands looking back now more than a hundred years into the past is that we had a couple of really amazing bands and then everyone else was just rank amateurs and terrible and we don't care. But it turns out there's actually a lot of very competent town bands at the time and they're not unlike the few community bands that are still around now. So they're capable of playing decent music and entertaining people. And one of the things like, like if you want to just start a band and let's say it's, you know, 1904 or something like that, there's actually a whole apparatus that's set up to help you start a band. We have a huge group of American band instrument manufacturers who are more than eager to set up and equip your band on a payment plan and send you all the instruments you need in the stands and they'll connect you with a uniform guy who will, who will sell you uniforms at a reasonable price. And then you can kind of pay it on layaway. And 
so that that the initial investment isn't as high as you might imagine. Um, the other thing to remember is that if if we're in a really small town, say in you know the middle of Iowa or Nebraska, and and we're a decent ways away from a major metropolitan area, bands were seen as a as an important part of establishing your town as a place that had some modicum of culture. And so it would not have been hard for you to talk to the owner of the local grocery store, the, the butcher and the baker and, and the local, you know, farm implements uh, purveyor and say, well, Hey, if you will support the band in this amount and you give this amount, then we'll have a band and they're going to play in the summer. And Hey, we got the County fair is coming up. And so we'll have the band for the County fair that will encourage more of the farmers to come in from the countryside and, and you'll easily make back your money on that small investment. So you're able to round up sort of, a chamber of commerce, as it were, on a fairly small budget. And then the the kind of last aspect, that if we've got a company willing to sell us the instruments and we've got a group of businessmen who are willing to help support the band over a term of a few years to get it established, the last thing you kind of need is someone who's willing to teach the band. And this is a time in which American Public schools don't really teach band in the same way they do now. Like I, I have a son who's in sixth grade. He he started saxophone in August and he'll keep doing it until probably college, you know, and it's just expected that, you know, he will be in the band, but that doesn't really exist in the, especially the earlier we go from like say 1860s to 1890s schools don't really have bands like that. So we would have a, in our hypothetical little town, we would have a group of, regular working class people who want to have some fun and play in a band in the same way people might play bridge, but they don't have any clue of how to play these instruments. And in that case, it, it turns out you have some options. One is you can hire an instructor, say he would come in once a week or once a month from the nearest area, a big town, and he would come teach the band for an evening and then he would go home. Or another option would be that you could actually do uh, sort of a learn by mail. You could order a, a set of lesson books from one of these same instrument manufacturers that would go through and teach you how to do it. And uh, you could sort of self-teach until you were good enough to play. Of course, hiring a real instructor is a little better than teaching yourself how to play. And probably the ones that hired real instructors lasted long. But of course, that's more expensive too. Um, but the idea that you could just start a band and get it on its feet and break even. Uh, I, I think most entrepreneurial Americans at the time would have said, yeah, sure, we can do that. It would work. So you got a whole range of Americans who want to do brass bands everywhere in the country. Uh, but then the, then the question comes up and it comes up quite a bit in your book is that, um, and it comes up elsewhere uh, in my interview with Joseph Horowitz about classical music, there was a real push and pull in this era, it seems to be, between musicians who wanted to be as good or even better than Europe at the, at the European game and people who wanted to do an American-style music based on all sorts of different cultural influences uh, from different regions. Uh, where do you think, uh, did it balance out in the United States? Did people constantly try to go for more European or did they go for more American or was it very varied? Um, 
I think the American band is distinctly American. There, there's definite differences in instrumentation and certainly in repertoire and uh, in attitude too. So uh, uh, if if you'd ask this question to John Philip Sousa, he'd he'd almost be offended to say, <laughs> you know, well, we're 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 so much better than those European bands. And, you know, haven't you heard us play? Like we can play rings around these guys and anything they can play, we can play better. Um, I think the, the extent of the European influence on the American band is probably measured in the, in that sort of basic idea I touched on earlier of the, the making the band into uh, music that can play art music. And, and that's where the, uh, the American sense of inferiority starts to come into play. Um, when we look over to Europe and we see Tchaikovsky or Wagner or Verdi, um, and then, you know, we look at who is composing in America and we'll, well, we got Dvorak for a while, say, who else do we have? And, you know, there's a few, you know, Chadwick or, um, and what have you. Um, but there's a real, maybe not quite an inferiority complex, but a sense of insecurity on the classical side. So your bandmaster would know that American popular music is, is much better than anything Europe's churning out and, and Tin Pan Alley. And, and we can play Annie Laurie and, you know, we, you know, uh, what's the, the one that they like the most during a hot time in the old time in the old town, Teddy Roosevelt's, favorite song on san juan hill like we we can do that no problem um and and then look we're, we're going to play these classical pieces to show that we're cultured too and and so it is distinctly american in that sense if you look at the programs of the european bands they, they're playing more classical fare and less popular fare and i think the, the last sort of thought when we look at the mega concerts that are put on in the United States, and often they're put on with the help of a prominent bandmaster like P.S. Gilmore's Jubilees or the uh, 1876 Philadelphia Centennial Celebration we or, or the World's Columbian Exposition in 1893, we see um, in, in the documents, like I, in my book, I have some of the committee notes that the World's Columbian had about what to do and there's a very real sense in those documents that yes we're going to have american bands because that's what americans want to hear and we're going to get the best one we can and it's going to be gilmore oh gilmore died fine we'll get souza and then we we need to have a couple of big european guys write something for us so or we'll have them come over and conduct so you see tchaikovsky uh, coming over to the United States. You see Wagner writing that march for the Philadelphia Centennial that everyone hates, but they still wanted him to compose it because it's Wagner. Or Dvorak, and they're trying to get the New World Symphony for World's Columbian in time. Or when Gilmore does the World's Peace Jubilee and he wants Strauss to come over, and he's just got a whole list of famous European performers. So there is a sense that, yes, we need the Europeans to give us a, a sense of high culture, but we're we're still better than them when it comes to your average band and your average band music. Speaking of people who uh, would definitely be proud of that, uh, you mentioned uh, Patrick Gilmore and John Phillips Sousa quite often, and they loom very large in this period and in your book. Um, could you perhaps give uh, me and my listeners like a brief introduction? Who were these guys? Why did they matter so much? Yeah, so... Uh, 
P.S. Gilmore is uh, born in, Ire- in, yeah, in Ireland. He comes to the United States as a young man uh, in, the, I think, the 1830s, late 1830s. He settles near Boston, and he initially is making a name for himself as a virtuoso on the cornet. Um, and, and a lot of these bandmasters were instrumental virtuosos first and then became bandmasters. There's a lot of, actually, there's a lot of parallels to how, say, rock bands work when rock groups break up and who's the lead singer kind of thing. Yeah, I um, noticed um, in your book, they talk a lot about the cornets and different kinds of instruments. I thought, well, this kind of reminds me of how in like the 60s and 70s, everybody was comparing guitars. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know the cornet superstar of the era, like a Jules Levy, um, they are like the Paul McCartney, you know, of of the eighteen seventies. Everyone knows them, and they're paid a ton of money, and they're headlining, and they're they're famous, and they they switch from band to band on a regular basis based on who will pay them the most. Um, anyway, so back back to Gilmore, he he conducts then a few important bands in the Boston area. And then just before the Civil War breaks out, he starts up his own sort of private band to make money. When the Civil War breaks out, like I mentioned earlier, that band enlists in the army, and that only lasts a few months. But then he comes back home as a patriotic hero. And then he starts to change the way that he views bands. And instead of thinking of himself as, quote unquote, just a bandmaster, he starts to think of himself as this sort of entrepreneur. So um, part of that is he he um, sees P.T. Barnum and, uh, you know, P.S. Gilmore. It stands theoretically for Patrick Sarsfeld Gilmore, but he, he knows P.T. Barnum and he tries to model himself after Barnum. So instead of being a circus guy, he's a band guy who puts on mega concerts. And instead of putting the greatest show on earth, he wants to put this greatest concert on earth if you will and so before the civil war is even over he sets up one of these big festivals in new orleans and that's with the help of the governor of massachusetts and then um when we get just after the civil war he gets together this group of investors do the national peace jubilee which is the first real mega concert and and that's modeled after uh, a few earlier ones um, by Louis Antoine Julien, who was another one of Gilmore's sort of idols and mentors. And then that's successful and he just gets bigger and bigger. So then he, he starts the world's peace Jubilee, which is actually financially probably a failure. It's not, it doesn't earn anyone any money. It actually loses some money, but as far as his reputation's concerned, it's a big deal. Then Gilmore in the 1880s until he dies in 1892, um, he forms the quote unquote Gilmore Band, which is a professional touring concert band. And they've got a syndicate that arranges for that band to appear in city by city. They basically charter their own train. They play a matinee concert in one town, take the train for an evening concert in the next town. Then they got sort of anchor destinations like Willow Grove outside of Philadelphia or um, the Atlantic City Pleasure Gardens, and they just follow the train line and tour the entire summer long from, say, the end of May until into September. And that's a lot of times the big cultural experience for a small town in the United States, and Gilmore becomes a household name. 
uh Sousa is the heir to Gilmore in more than one ways um he he's born in Washington DC his father plays in the marine band and Sousa as a young man is sort of an apprentice in the marine band but Sousa's a violinist and his aspiration originally is to be this theater orchestra conductor which he does for a while until he gets hired as the director of the marine band and then he turns the marine band from this weird hodgepodge potpourri ensemble into what we would think of as a modern concert band Sousa in the late 1880s gets into trouble with the Marine Band because he has these aspirations of touring with Marine Band like Gilmore is doing. He wants to be Gilmore. And his ensemble, the problem is it's a government ensemble and he wants to tour and make a lot of money and sell tickets. The government is like, you know, this is the Marine Band. You're based in D.C. You're supposed to be mostly playing for the president and state functions. You can't just be gallivanting around. And how can you earn money on this when this is a taxpayer-funded thing? You know, of course, today the Marine Band plays for free and that's one of the reasons is because Sousa gets into some trouble with it in the 1880s well the the tie-in from Gilmore to Sousa is this guy named David Blakely he runs a group called the Blakely Syndicate out of New York and it's he's it's sort of a theater racket that he's got going on uh, a syndicate of theaters and theater managers that can set up tours and Blakely's relationship with Gilmore is a little bit on the rocks. Gilmore wants to find new management and, and, and Blakely needs someone to take over. So he basically hires Sousa away from the Marine band and says, you're going to create your own band. It's not going to be the Gilmore band. It's going to be the Sousa band, but in all other aspects, it'll be the same. And then Blakely mentors Sousa. And then instead of having this battle of the bands where Gilmore and Sousa duke it out, it, Gil, Gilmore dies in 92. And then Blakely helps Sousa poach Gilmore's musicians for 1893. And then from there on, Sousa's band is the band that dominates the American landscape until about 1828 or 1829. And then Sousa finally dies in, uh, in 1932. And so Sousa's the one we remember the most because he writes these famous marches, Stars and Stripes Forever and all that. But really, without Gilmore, there is no Sousa and bands look a lot different. Speaking of how bands look, uh, you mentioned in the book how, for whatever reason, and I might perhaps ask you that, you said that um, marching bands tended to be highly segregated by identity, uh, male, yeah. female, white, black, uh, native protestant italian german so first of all why were they so segregated because i know uh from interviewing a travesty about vaudeville that was a place that was also that was also a realm of entertainment where people mixed and matched a little more uh, and second of all um what did anything did did the fact that these people's uh having to be together uh but unique from other people lead to say a unique italian style or a german style or did everyone try and follow the same rough model well ah, right that's it's an involved question you've asked i think uh to for the first question why are they why are they so segregated i think the answer is in the very nature of bands as a social endeavor so people tend to hang out with their friends and the, Oftentimes in the United States, especially in this era of 
of a lot of immigration, waves of immigration that come from specific places in specific periods. Um, uh, people are buddies with certain other friends that came from the same place. They speak the same native language. And, and so there's just a sense that, well, we'll just form a band and it'll be fun in the, in the same way that, uh, I don't know, that people join a, a little league for baseball nowadays or, or which church do you choose to go to? Um, you, you likely choose a church partly based on your raising, but also partly based on who your friends are and where you feel comfortable. And, and so there is a very real sense, you know, think about, you know, the 1880s. Germans and Italians just do not get along very well. And, and, and when the Irish show up, everyone hates the Irish, you know. So to have a German band and an Italian band in the same town is partly just that's who we are and who we're friends with. And, and another part is that these bands often are very, very local in a sense, almost micro locality, because whatever park in the neighborhood is where they're going to do their playing. And think of how New York City is such a patchwork quilt at the time. There's a there's a Jewish neighborhood, there's an Italian neighborhood, there's a German neighborhood. You know, where do you go for a good deli sandwich is someone else's part of town, very literally. And that's true of the bands then too, because those people are playing within their own little sphere. Um as far as, you know, why men's bands are the de facto and why ladies' bands are separate. Um I think part of that is just the way that gender works in the period and, and the idea that a woman would have to physically exert herself to play music. Uh, the cornet is seen as such a masculine instrument. And again, there's a tie in there with how rock bands work. If you think about how guitars and, and the sixties and all that, that's a very masculine thing and, and bands are the same way. So if you're a, if you're a woman in the 1860s, 70s and eighties, you probably do have musical training and you probably do have more musical training than your husband. That training is probably on piano because that was a very feminine instrument. And that's just part of your culturing and your, your, your training for womanhood, as it were. Um, as far as why white and black bands, you, you only really rarely see bands that have mixed ethnicities in general. And of course the United States before the civil war with slavery but even after the civil war those those neighborhoods are even more starkly divided between black and white and, and so that's probably the main reason there are, there are certain exceptions to be sure um and, and those exceptions become increasingly common later in the period but they always they always are exceptions and um i'm trying to think what was the last part of your question that you asked i'm forgetting oh. now uh, whether or not uh, the fact that you had black bands, women's bands, Italian bands, German bands, did that produce any kind of unique musical style oh. or did everybody? Unique styles. Yeah. Um, you do see people talking about having little German bands or little Italian bands. They always preface it with little. And uh, those are usually smaller, maybe more dance orientated bands. So playing polkas or something like this. Um I think when we're talking about an actual concert band or a band that would march in a parade, say a band of 20 to 30 or even more players, they are pretty much all playing the same things. There'd be certain differences. Of course, a German band might favor Wagner over 
Verity or something like this. And and uh, they might favor certain marches that sounded more German or the German national anthem versus an Italian one. I, I do have, I'm, I'm working on another book right now and I just came across a description of a concert at Ellis Island and they had a schedule set up so that the people getting off the boats would hear a band with which they were familiar. And there was one day they had a company band. I think it was Metropolitan Life Insurance's band. I don't quote me on that, but they were they were playing and they were mostly German and an Italian band showed up. It was a professional Italian band. And they said that we, they were scheduled for the day and the Germans were like, no, 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 we're, we're already playing. It's our day. And they actually were interrupting each other in alternation. Look, this is an Italian ship that's getting here. We're playing Italian stuff. And the Germans like, no, 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 no. Um, But if you read what they each were playing, aside from the classical excerpts, they're more or less playing the same stuff. Um, so to add to that uh, question of different styles, you said that they're more or less playing the same stuff. Uh, one of the things that really breaks out around the time that John Philip Sousa uh, gets to have his own independent band is Ragtime, uh, the precursor to the absolute phenomenon that is jazz. Uh, and you mentioned and a number of the documents in your book mention how there's something of an ambivalent attitude towards it. They, so how did band masters in general see it? Were the, did they, because the, I noticed that the, the people in the classical music world tended to thumb their noses down a bit, but how did band masters generally feel about the ragtime and jazz and that stuff? Oh, well, it's interesting you asked that question because I, a couple of years ago, I did write a whole article on it for the Journal of Band Research because it, it, I had the same question. And um, I think as far as the average bandmaster is concerned, it really depends on how popular they want to be. And do they think ragtime is just a fad or is it a fad they can capitalize on? Or is it something that's going to embarrass them in the long term? And each bandmaster makes their own decision from there so thomas preston brook tp brook who directs the chicago marine band which is just his own ensemble he says you know my job is to entertain not to enlighten and we like ragtime the audience is like it it sells tickets we're going to play ragtime enjoy um when you get to the real upper echelons and and brooke he's very close to the upper echelons he's not quite Sousa, but he does play at a lot of the venues Sousa does and he does tour but when we get to a guy like Sousa or some of Sousa's most famous proteges like arthur Pryor and herbert l clark you can start to see uh different interpretations so Sousa is he he does want to capitalize on ragtime and he thinks initially that it's probably a fad and then Arthur Pryor convinces him that it's not a fad. Arthur Pryor writes a lot of rags himself. Arthur Pryor's from Missouri. He's from a town not far from where Scott Joplin is from. Uh, he He's at the World's Fair in 1893 when Joplin's playing in downtown Chicago and, and Pryor is a big fan of ragtime and he makes a decent amount of money by composing ragtime pieces, the whistler and his dog is super famous and there's whistling in there, but it's a ragtime piece. Artful Artie, which he names after himself. Yeah. That's my favorite Arthur Pryor rag. In fact, 
Um, and so he talks Sousa into it. And then Sousa's like, okay. And he plays Ragtime. He plays it in France when the band tours there and um, in, in 1904. And the French love it. And the French are like, wow, Sousa, it's Ragtime. America, great. Um, and so Sousa really benefits from Ragtime a lot. Um, then when we get to jazz, the, the break in there is is World War One, of course, and in, and and the Sousa band still tours. But after World War One, jazz becomes a, a bigger thing, and and Sousa ain't as young as he used to be. So where, you know, forty or fifty year old Sousa is like, yeah, we can use ragtime; it'll be fun; it'll get audiences, connect with the kids. You know, sixty year old Sousa is more, you know, eh, jazz. I don't know; it sounds like a fad, and. Herbert L. Clark, who's Sousa's virtuoso cornet soloist for a number of years, is adamantly opposed to jazz. He thinks jazz is terrible. He he writes a famous letter in which he says the trumpet is the nearest to the devil in music because it's associated with jazz, whereas the cornet, the noble instrument, you know, the the other one they like to fight over is the saxophone. And and Sousa eventually claims that when he plays jazz, he makes a lady out of the saxophone, but but it's a wild and uncontrollable instrument when played in modern jazz and squealing clarinets and all this. But Sousa does flirt with jazz for about a one-year period, and we actually have the arrangements that he was playing, and it turns out what he was playing and what he called jazz does not sound anything like jazz and um it doesn't swing and it's mostly popular arrangements in potpourri that are maybe ragtime at best so yeah the 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 jazz thing is a lot more touchy than the ragtime but it's also that's the end of the era and Cryer, Souza, and Clark know that they're witnessing the end of an era and so rather than try to think well how can we be popular they well We'll admit that we're not going to be popular anymore, but we do have an older audience base that wants to hear the classics. And then there's a, there is a classicization that goes on there. So the Stars and Stripes is new in the 1880s, 1890s, but in the 1920s, 1930s, it's a classic that people want to hear at the end of every concert. And so there is this generational thing that happens and ragtime the bands generally do capitalize on a lot and jazz they really don't speaking of an end of an era uh towards the end of your book uh, as you mentioned how uh, band music transitioned it's fascinating how up until say, the 1910s uh it's almost exclusively a market-driven phenomenon you need to sell tickets you need to get uh, gigs you need to... but by you mentioned how Iowa and quite a number, a number of states start to pass laws to um, to subsidize uh, bands, local bands, and you also mentioned the school movement. How is how did that how did that start? How did it take off? How did it manage to entrench itself? Even as as you said, uh, the, the the brass band sort of missed the train on the on the big thing of jazz. Yeah, well, all right, so jazz is really just beginning in the 20s. And, and there's a, there's a solid period up until the beginning of World War II where bands are still enormously popular and they may be on the decline and jazz may be on the ascendancy, but there's still a large segment of the American population that thinks about popular music as the realm of bands. Um, the, the real, say, 
catalyst behind things like the Iowa ban law, which all the Iowa ban law is is a state law that says that municipalities can have a referendum to pass a property tax to pay for a town ban. Um, the impetus behind that ban law is a small group of bandmasters who, one of them is Carl King, who is a native to Iowa, and he's a publisher too. Uh, one, one of their impetuses for that is the difficulties of touring in the post-World War One era, but especially when we get to the Great Depression. Um, bands, the, the big touring bands like Azusa, like a Gilmore, like a Pryor, they just can't earn money anymore by the time you get even to shoot the the by even the mid 1920s even a couple years before the market crashes putting together a tour and making money gets much more difficult than it had been say in the 1910s or certainly a decade earlier um and, and what happens is bands start to settle down in a sense instead of being a touring band and Sousa's band is based nominally in a skyscraper in new york city um, and the prior band is based down the road. Um, they start to settle down. Now, Sousa refuses to settle down. He wants to keep touring. But Arthur Pryor actually moves to New Jersey and he settles in a town outside Atlantic City and he runs for mayor and then he conducts the town band. He, he actually wins an election. Um, and the town bands do replace those touring bands then. If, if, if the touring bands gave you one concert a year well with just a small tax levy you can have a hometown ensemble that's really generating interest within the city and, a, and is a cultural attraction on a regular basis and and those the band laws really allow those ensembles to function and it's it's more economically feasible because it's local usually semi-professional musicians maybe with a professional band director like a carl king um, and so you're able to keep having that concert life in the park without having to worry about, is the Sousa band going to tour through our city this year? Because the odds are that is that they're not going to, because they don't have the money to come to the small towns anymore. And last but not least, uh, how did they manage to convince the schools? Uh, to effectively pay for and have music programs after, as you said, from the 1860s to the 1890s, even though brass, brass bands were ascending in popularity, schools were not interested. Well, it's this is a long and involved process. It, it takes, shoot, 50-ish years or so to get from the first school band, which is a it's an orphanage band outside of Boston in the immediate post-Civil War era, to get from that to every high school has a band and most middle schools have a band. That's a sort of 1950s kind of suburban thing. That that process, it, I guess it's more like 75 to a 90 years than it is even like 50 years. Um, a, a few things do happen. The first, with that original Boston orphanage band, um, the idea for them is as a fundraiser, and so this they're way off on Thompson Island. What if we formed a band? They could go downtown to Boston and play to raise money for the, the poor orphans. Uh, 
And, and that actually ties into classical music. If you look way back to Vivaldi in the Baroque era, Vivaldi conducts uh, a girls' orphanage orchestra. And the entire point behind that is not so much to educate these girls as to pay the bills and keep the orphanage solvent. So you got a little Orphan Annie thing going on with that very first band. Um, so they're they're an outreach and they're a fundraiser aspect to the schools. When we get a little bit later and we start seeing town sports become a thing and not quite professional sports yet, but maybe school sports, bands and town bands, especially company bands, local bands, often played for baseball games, town baseball games, town football games, track meets, company picnics and things like that. And so if your school had an athletic team, well, then you could probably justify putting together a band. And, and really, that's one of the reasons why bands are still around today, because there is this tradition, you know, Friday night high school football, you need a marching band, they're going to do the halftime show. And as many people probably show up to hear the band to show up to watch the football game if your football team's mediocre. Um, now, the the last sort of aspect to this is the the educational aspect and the idea of teaching kids music to make them a better more well-rounded person that that is there from the very beginning because boston is a home to american music education and, and lowell mason and and the first public schools to adopt a music curriculum are in boston so it's not a coincidence that thompson island band is the first school band and is just outside of boston there's something in the air in boston that and bands are the popular ensemble the further along we get of course it becomes apparent that Americans maybe don't want to play orchestral instruments. They want to play band instruments because that's what their parents played. And and people like to go and hear the band and it's popular. As as time progresses and we get to World War One, and then after World War One, the patriotism part starts to play a role and the classicism part starts to play a role. Sousa isn't just some, you know, old dead European and he's not, you know, just some throw away we can ignore him you know flim flam showman he's john philip souza the march king and he writes the best marches and he's played them for the king of england and he's played them in paris and he's played them in germany so there's this cultural aspect to it and so then bands in the immediate world war one area in up to world war ii and then definitely by the 50s bands are seen as a classical educational ensemble where you can teach young kids culture and American culture specifically, which works really well if you're a public school, of course, because part of American public schools is teaching government and civics and the teamwork, and it, it all plays in really nicely together. That it does. Uh, Brian Proch, you have given us a wonderful introduction to uh, uh, a fascinating topic. Thank you very much for coming uh, I'd like to once again remind my listeners that you can listen to this podcast on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify, and you can support the podcast on Patreon. See you all next time at Avi's Conversation Corner.